Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Anna Limke on Dopamine Nation. First, I wanted to remind you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the psychology or science and medicine category for episode number 100 with Lisa Feldman Barrett on seven and a half lessons about the brain. This is Lisa Feldman Barrett, author of seven and a half lessons about the brain. And you are listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Anna Lemke, MD, is the medical director of Stanford Addiction Medicine, a psychiatrist with years of decorated research into mental illness, and the author of the book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Anna, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So what was your goal with Dopamine Nation? Well, I wanted to um, talk about how our primitive wiring is mismatched for the modern ecosystem, making us all more more vulnerable to the problem of addiction, as well as providing a pathway out of compulsive overconsumption by teaching people about the neuroscience of addiction, as well as um, holding my patients in recovery up as modern day prophets for the rest of us. And for some context for everything else that we'll be talking about today, what is dopamine? Dopamine is a chemical that we make in our brain. It is essential to the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. And it's also fundamental to the process of becoming addicted. And what does pop culture get wrong about dopamine, Anna? Well, um, a couple things. Um, Dopamine is not just about pleasure. It's more about motivation than it is the experience of pleasure itself. Um, It's more about uh, wanting than liking. There's a classic experiment where um, a rat was engineered to have no dopamine. And the scientists discovered that if they put food in the rat's mouth, it would chew the food, eat the food and seem to get pleasure from it. But if they put the food just a body length away, the, the rat would not move toward the food to get it and would potentially starve to death, which is just a very nice uh, illustration of how important dopamine is to, um, to motivation, to getting us to get up, to go get that reward as much as it is about uh, the, the feeling that we get when we ingest the reward. The other thing that's important to know about the dopamine is that it can also be triggered by aversive stimuli, especially novelty. So novelty is really key. Dopamine is a, a molecule that you know we evolved over millions of years that allows us to respond to changes in our environment um, in a really subtle and important way that in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger is important for survival, but in the modern ecosystem has become maladaptive. And what was that that you said has become maladapt- uh, maladaptive? So our the way that um, our dopamine reward system works is to get us to approach pleasure and avoid pain. And it does this through this opponent process mechanism, which I talk about with the pleasure pain balance. And that mechanism is what has kept us uh, you know, as eternal seekers, always wanting more, never being satisfied with what we have. Um, and that's a great way to be wired if you're living, in, <clears throat> excuse me, 
That's a great way to be wired if you're living in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger, but it's not so great if you're living in a world of overwhelming abundance like the world that we live in today. What is the dopamine economy and how does it play into compulsive abuse of countless substances and activities? So the dopamine economy is essentially the dark side of capitalism, the ways in which um, our technology and innovation has allowed us to drugify all kinds of substances and behaviors. I mean, I would argue that almost everything is drugified now. Uh, Watching shows is drugified, reading is drugified, eating is drugified, such that we've all become more vulnerable to this process of addiction. And consuming is essentially, um, you know, our major reason for being in a, a very successful capitalist economy. But the downside is, of course, that we have now reached this tipping point where Um, We're essentially titillating titillating ourselves to death. 70% of the world's global deaths are due to modifiable risk factors like diet, lack of exercise, and smoking. Boy, 70%. That is a scary number to think about considering that it just seems to keep going in the wrong direction year after year. Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, it's again, if you think about how our brains evolved over millions of years to keep us alive, to approach pleasure and avoid pain, it's not at all surprising that we would do that. The problem is that there are so many pleasurable substances and we're largely insulated, not just from pain, but even physical activity such that, you know, our brains are trying to compensate for all this dopamine by downregulating our own dopamine receptors and transmission and we've all essentially become, you know, addicted. How has the rise of helicopter parenting and subsequent participation trophy society made things even worse? I think that, you know, part of the problem here is not just are we exposed to so many more quick fixes um, for pleasure and reward, but we've also evolved alongside it a narrative that tells us that experiencing any kind of pain is dangerous and that pain leaves a kind of psychic scar that sets us up for future pain in the form of post-traumatic stress disorder. And the result is that we've got several generations of parents, including my own, um, that have been led to believe that if our children experience any kind of obstacle, challenge, distress, discomfort, we're essentially setting them up for the psychotherapist couch in the future. And that we've got to, you know, swoop down in there and remove those obstacles uh, so that our kids don't end up, you know, neurotic. But the truth of the matter is we're doing our kids a huge disservice by doing that because it is by facing and overcoming challenges that we build a child's self-confidence and give them the resilience and the touchstone of having overcome that difficult Um, you know, situation to know that they can overcome difficult situations going forward. Whether with kids or adults, are we over-diagnosing mental illness that requires medication? We've absolutely over-pathologized everyday life. Things that people just used to take for granted were part of, you know, growing up or living in the world. We now consider to be um, various forms of psychopathology. And the the real problem with that is once we've diagnosed a disorder, we're also much more liable to medicate it because we have a healthcare system that's completely designed around prescribing pills and performing procedures because that's what pays. So we have a huge problem of overdiagnosing mental disorders and also over-medicating mental disorders. 
You mentioned this a few answers ago, but how do pleasure and pain work like a balance in our brains, Anna? Pleasure and pain are co-located. So the same part of the brain that processes pleasure also processes pain and they work like opposite sides of the balance. So when we do something pleasurable, it tips to the side of pleasure. When we experience something painful, it tips to the side of pain. But the key here is that the brain wants to preserve a level balance or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. And the brain will work very hard to do that. So when we do something pleasurable, we release dopamine, the pleasure neurotransmitter in the reward pathway, the balance tips to the side of pleasure. But no sooner has that happened then our brain will start to downregulate dopamine production and dopamine transmission, not just back to tonic baseline levels, but actually below baseline levels. That's that moment of wanting one more piece of chocolate, one more video game, one more glass of wine. Now, if we wait long enough, that feeling passes and homeostasis is restored. But if we don't wait, if we continue to ingest that reinforcing substance or behavior repeatedly over days to weeks to months, we eventually end up with a pleasure pain balance that's chronically tipped to the side of pain. And once that happens, we're essentially in the realm of addiction because then we need more and more of that drug to get the same effect, not to feel good, but just to level the balance and feel normal. And when we're not using that drug, we're experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal of being in a dopamine deficit state, which are anxiety, insomnia, irritability, and depression. And you're right that dopamine transmission dries out in addicts a few weeks after quitting. How long does it take for this to normalize in their brains again? The, my clinical experience is that it takes a minimum of about four weeks hmm. for us to reset our dopamine reward pathways. The first two weeks, people are in withdrawal, and very uncomfortable. And by weeks three and four, they're starting to feel better. Um, this is also supported by some of the evidence. So an imaging study by Nora Volkoff showed that people with addiction to substances like methamphetamine, heroin, in withdrawal two weeks out are in a dopamine deficit state, meaning that their dopamine transmission in their reward pathway is lower than that of compared healthy controls. Also, there's an interesting study by Brown and Shuckett that looked at men who consume alcohol in an addictive way and who also met criteria for a major depressive episode, put them in the hospital with no treatment other than not giving them any access to alcohol and found that after four weeks, the majority of those men no longer met criteria for a major depressive episode. So by just eliminating alcohol alone, their depression resolved, which again, gets to the ways in which overconsumption of highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors drives down our mood. And then we're using just to get out of that painful state. It feels like it's working as a form of self-medication, but really it is the cause of that depressed state. What effect does gambling have on dopamine release and how might that help us understand why social media has become so addictive? So gambling is uh, an addictive behavior for many individuals. It releases, you know, winning money or whatever the currency is releases dopamine in the reward pathway. The fundamental difference between things that are addictive and those that aren't, things that are addictive release a lot of dopamine and release it very quickly. The interesting thing that happens though with gambling is that for people who become addicted gamblers, it gets to a point where it's not even really about winning. It's more about being in that altered mind state where they can be numb and not think about anything else. And when they're in that mind state, losing, in fact, can be reinforcing. And there's this phenomenon called loss chasing, 
where in some ways addicted gamblers kind of want to lose because as long as they're losing, that means they can, they're compelled to stay longer at the table in order to get those winnings back. A very interesting imaging study looked at the um, sort of, you know, dopamine levels of healthy controls while they were gambling and addicted gamblers gambling and found that for both of those groups, um, there was an increase in dopamine when they were gambling and winning. But interestingly, uh, for the addicted gamblers, there was an increase in dopamine when they were losing as well. And that the greatest increase uh, in dopamine occurred when the odds of winning and losing were equal. So at the moment of greatest uncertainty, that was the reinforcing uh, effect for addicted, an addicted gambler versus you know a non-addicted gambler. Like if they weren't winning, they weren't having a good time. They weren't releasing dopamine. And yep. the parallels with social media for that are that there is a way in which <clears throat> Social media really does engage this gambling function or this search and discover, you know, looking for that next treasure. And the uncertainty with which social media responds to our input can be a reinforcing aspect of it. So, you know, if you put some an image or a text and you don't know, are people going to like it? Are they going to hate it? That uncertainty is probably part of what drives the reinforcing behaviors for people, uh, you know, who get addicted to social media. I guess that's especially scary because it's not just about the likes and comments on whatever a post is, especially in a medium like Twitter, but some of the negative and toxic stuff that comes as a result that can further fuel uh, your desire to stay on that, uh, that social media channel unknowingly uh, with it being as addictive as it is. And a lot of people have gotten caught in that trap now and are just enabled to, to, uh, to break away from their computers or their phones as a result. Yeah, it's a really important point that um, when people become addicted, it's not pleasurable anymore, right? It's not fun, but they're still sort of chasing some of that original feeling. And again, that's that pleasure pain balance tilted to the side of pain we're using to get out of that painful state. And so, yeah, you know, when things go sour on social media, that instead of turning people away can be something that pulls them in because then they have to feel like they have to keep checking to see what their status is. You know, have they... Have they been able to redeem themselves? You know, and when, and if and when they do, then it's even more reinforcing because it was kind of unexpected or they were in the hole and now they're, you know, now they're people like them again. So it's this incredible kind of drugification of human connection. And of course, we're wired to connect with humans. We know that dopamine is released when people like us, when they agree with us, when we have the same emotion at the same time. But what social media has done is essentially turn that into a drug such that people can really get lost in that. I was surprised to read that learning increases dopamine firing. How so? Yeah. So, I mean, learning is reinforcing, right? And highly adaptive. And um, you can see if you take a rat and you expose, expose it to a complex maze with lots of different cool things to explore, you can get a similar arborization of dopaminergic neurons in the reward pathway, as you see when you expose that, um, that animal to a drug like cocaine or methamphetamine. But one of, I think one of the very interesting experiments that's been done is to look at what happens when you pre-treat that rat with methamphetamine and then expose it to this learning environment. And what happens is essentially there's no additional arborization in the dopamine reward pathway with the learning environment. In other words, that pre-exposure to methamphetamine kind of sort of maxes out the dopamine neurons, and there's no additional learning beyond that. 
which is, you know, of concern. Well, that's ironic because so many kids, uh, college age and otherwise, will take something like Adderall around the time of finals because it supposedly helps them retain information. But you're saying the research is showing that that's not the case. Well, not exactly. So what what stimulants in the form of Adderall do for almost everybody, whether or not you have ADHD, is to help with repetitive rote tasks, attention on repetitive rote tasks, Hmm. wakefulness, and to some extent, um, memorization. But what Adderall doesn't do is allow for integrated processing, creative thoughts and ideas, um, you know, complex judgments. It's, it helps with repetitive tasks over time and attention. So it's a very specific type of attention, not necessarily learning uh, that happens uh, with, uh, with Adderall use. Got it. And Thank in you. fact, sorry, I was just going to say the data show that college kids who take Adderall are more likely to get bad grades than college kids who have ADHD who don't take Adderall. Hmm. What is dopamine fasting and how does mindfulness play into this concept? Yeah, so dopamine fasting is essentially a way to reset reward pathways. Um, By abstaining from our drug of choice, we initially go into this dopamine deficit state. We experience the universal symptoms of withdrawal. But if we can just tolerate that for long enough, again, usually a minimum of 30 days, what we do is our own endogenous endocannabinoid, endodopamine, endo-opioid system starts to upregulate again and, and basically bring those levels back up to a homeostatic balance, which means that we're no longer needing to use our drug of choice to feel normal. We're able to open up our perception and take joy in more modest rewards. Um, we're not constantly in this cycle um, you know, of chasing dopamine, and we're more resilient in response both to pleasurable stimuli, but also um, painful stimuli. Self-binding involves creating barriers between ourselves and our addiction to ebb compulsive overconsumption. And there are three ways to do this, as you point out in Dopamine Nation, with physical strategies, chronological strategies, and categorical strategies. Now, physical strategies make sense for me as somebody who used to smoke cigarettes. Don't have the pack of cigarettes around, it becomes more difficult to smoke cigarettes. But I'm curious about the other two. So what are some examples of chronological uh, strategies involving self-binding? Sure. So chronological strategies is just a way to use the construct of time to temper our use. Um, For example, I had a patient addicted to video games. He abstained for a period of time to reset reward pathways, but eventually he wanted to go back to using video games in moderation. He did that by limiting his video games to just two days a week, no more than two hours a day. So creating those kinds of boundaries. um, By the way, they're not infallible. What sometimes people will be okay for a while and then slowly, um, you know, that's a slippery slope back to, regular, more compulsive use, but using that along with some other strategies, his categorical strategies, categorical strategies are sort of a way of um, um, kind of creating sort of categorical barriers. So uh, he did that by saying that he would, he was never going to play certain video games, right? They were in his taboo category, but these video games he could play. And he just, that was trial and error. He realized when he played League of Legends, he just couldn't control himself. So he played other video games. Another category he made for himself was he would only play with friends, never with strangers. 
because through trial and error, he decided, he realized that once he played, started playing video games with strangers, he was more likely to stay up all night past when he wanted to stay up. So those are the kinds of barriers that we can uh, come up with. Is it usually a good strategy to try and replace an addiction with some sort of prescribed drug or another activity that could also become addictive? The problem with that is anytime we're pressing on the pleasure side, we're liable for cross addiction. So if we replace one reward with another reward, we're, we're likely to get addicted to that other reward. Or if it's a very modest reward, it's likely not to work, right? Because now we've got a pleasure pain balance tilted to the side of pain, and we need more potent forms in order to, to get to homeostasis. So usually the first intervention that I like to do is just abstaining the dopamine fast and see if reward pathways can reset themselves. In patients who um, don't feel better after a month of a dopamine fast or who don't feel all the way better, those are then patients in which I might go in with, let's say, an antidepressant um, in order to sort of help them along because, you know, mental illness is real and um, that can be an underlying or co-occurring problem. There are also patients in whom uh, the balance is potentially broken, um, which is to say it's tilted chronically to the side of pain and um, even a long period of abstinence will not reset reward pathways and will not restore homeostasis. And for those individuals, um, it makes sense to give them a medication just to allow them to have a level balance so they can go back, you know, into the world and, and have some kind of, um, you know, quality of life. I'm specifically thinking of people with severe opioid addiction for whom we prescribe opioids like methadone maintenance or buprenorphine. It's a way not of getting them high, but just getting them out of the pain side of the balance to uh, wean them off of that. I'm guessing that's why a lot of recovery programs discourage romantic relationships in the first month of recovery. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely part of it. I mean, mm. love and sex addiction are real. And, um, you know, you the important thing about recovery is really learning how to just sit with those distressing feelings without trying to run away from them. Um, so, you know, if you're going to run away from those feelings by falling in love, that's not going to work in the long run. It's also potentially objectifying that other person and using them, um, usually unconsciously, but nonetheless using them for, you know, your own um, sort of mental stability. The other reason though, that, that group therapy or peer recovery discourages that is because in order for groups to remain safe spaces for everybody in the group, you don't want to have people having the sort of like intimate connections that other people don't share. You wonder if taking psychotropic drugs is causing us to lose some essential aspect of our humanity. Are they? Well, um, you know, I do talk about the overprescribing of antidepressants and other psychiatric medications. And I do think that there's a real risk uh, in overprescribing those, those medications. Um, I have patients who have been on antidepressants, for example, who will describe that, yes, it's true, I'm less depressed and less anxious, but I also have less access to deep emotions like a grief and awe. And so those individuals will want to come off and tolerate, learn to tolerate more depression and anxiety, which also gives them more access to these kind of deeper human experiences. So I, the point really is that there's always a cost kind of to any substance that we ingest, and we have to be really thoughtful about whether the cost is worth it. You also examine embracing pain instead of medicating it. You've discussed that throughout the course of the conversation today. How does, plain how does pain become pleasurable? Well, again, by pressing in mild to moderate doses on the pain side of the balance, what we do is trigger our body to upregulate increased production of our own endogenous dopamine, as well as other feel-good neurotransmitters, 
like serotonin, norepinephrine, endogenous opioids, et cetera. So pain can be um, a very adaptive way to um, increase dopamine and it's less vulnerable to the um, addictive and tolerance producing effects as, as ingesting you know, a substance that's directly intoxicating and directly releases dopamine by pressing on the pleasure side. Why? Because it's indirect. We have to work for it. And through that work, we then upregulate um, production uh, in our bodies as opposed to experiencing the sudden increase followed by plummeting uh, dopamine levels. As I was reading through the chapter on pain as pleasure, I can't help but to think about some of the ultra marathoners that I've interviewed for my podcast. And sure enough, you talk about an ultra marathoner, and it's just crazy to think about what they put themselves through, both physically and mentally, and running 50 to 100 to sometimes many more miles than that. Why are some people addicted to this extreme amount of stress on the body and mind, having to know in the back of their minds that it can't be good for them what they're doing to themselves? Well, I mean, I guess I wouldn't want to say that all ultra marathoners are addicted or doing something that's bad. I mean, I think we really have to sort of parse it out and say, okay, if they're continuing to run while they have stress fractures that could leave them debilitated, that would be of concern. But I think some people just need that level of friction and intensity. They're mm. passionate people. Um, they're, they're not going to be happy with sort of like the average amount of pleasure or the average amount of pain. And, you know, if they can press on the pain side of uh, on the balance as a way to get that intensity and pleasure. That's certainly in my opinion, much better than like using cocaine or heroin or alcohol to get to that place. Can it tip over into addiction? It absolutely can, um, but it doesn't necessarily do so, you know, in every case. What makes work addictive? Well, I mean, work has become drugified as well. It's now divorced from the meaning of the work itself. Um, it's often quantified with these metrics that sort of trigger dopamine. When we enumerate things, that usually triggers dopamine. For example, in the medical profession, we get these printouts every month telling us whether or not we've met our billing targets. When our graph is above the billing target, you know, I get a little hit of dopamine. Oh, good, I'm above my billing target. When it goes below, I feel the stress. Um, and the, you know, the potential result of that is that patients then become objectified as a means toward an end, not as people who are you know, ill who need my help. Radical honesty is telling the truth about things, both big and small. This works on structural levels, including fostering human connections. Is this simply because people tend to respect others who aren't afraid to discuss hard truths? I think that's probably part of it, but I think more than engendering respect, what radical honesty does is it, it, it opens us up to other people um, we think that telling people like bad stuff we've done or stuff we're ashamed about is going to like send them running. But in fact, what it does is make people feel closer to us because of the shared humanity, because we've all done stuff that, you know, we're ashamed of and that we regret. And so when, when we share that with somebody else and they don't run away, um, you know, it feels super good and releases dopamine and oxytocin and all those good things. Um, radical truth telling also forces us to be accountable to ourselves and others to tell true stories about what we're really doing in the world. So it can't remain in the dark recesses of denial, which is a very, you know, a common thing. Um, radical truth telling also is very effortful because we're all natural liars. Um, and we all tell on average one to two small lies a day. So when we intentionally pay attention to that and try not to lie, it probably upregulates our prefrontal cortex 
Our prefrontal cortex is that gray matter area right behind our foreheads involved in storytelling, delayed gratification, um, future consequences. So when we're stimulating that part of our brain by radical truth telling, uh, we're probably more able to know what's going on with our pleasure pain balance and, and be more aware and just, you know, put be able to put that little bit of a pause between desire and our choice to act on that desire. It's also possible, and I, I speculate that based on a couple of interesting experiments that I talk about in the book, that radical truth telling is also contagious and that when we're telling the truth, the people around us, including our children are more likely to tell the truth hmm. and possibly preventive for addiction that if we raise our children to tell the truth, they may be less likely to become addicted. Hmm. What is pro-social shame? Pro-social shame is a way of acknowledging that shame can be a very important adaptive emotion. Shame is an emotion that gets us to change our behavior because we want to belong to the tribe and belonging to the tribe is a fundamental you know, human instinct. Um, the, the important thing though, is to make sure that, that, that it is pro-social shame, that it's uh, that, you know, when we tell people what we've really done, that the tribe doesn't shun us for it, but instead embraces us and gives us a path for making amends. Um, whereas destructive shame, which occurs when people shun, you know, somebody, um, that can then drive that person to just want to use um, more of their substance or, you know, engage further in this isolative addictive cycle. Do you have some good suggestions for some parents out there on how to incorporate pro-social shame specifically with parenting? Yeah, I think it's important to be honest with kids about their true strengths and weaknesses. Mm. Um, I think one of the things that we have gotten into as parents today is that we we think we need to boost our kids' self-esteem by telling them all the things that they do well. But if that tips over into the point where we're telling them things that aren't really truthful and we're not pointing out their true character defects and limitations, we're first of all, depriving them of the opportunity to truly know themselves. Because there are a few places now in society where people are going to get honest and real feedback. Everything has, people have become so sensitive to, um, you know, being canceled or called out if they say what they really think that it's pretty easy now to go through life and not get real honest feedback about our thoughts and behaviors. So I think in the home done with compassion, it's really important to say to kids, you know, hey, I've noticed that, you know, you have this character defect, for example, you know, one of our sons uh, early on, it was clear that, you know, when we said no, he thought that meant yes. (laughs) When we said turn left, he thought that meant turn right. And it was just sort of a reflexive part of his character. So, you know, we said to him really early on, you know, you have this kind of oppositional defiant um, part of your nature where, you know, you just want to do the opposite of what you're told to do. And we just said, you know, in some instances, that would be great. Like if all the lemmings are running to the edge of the cliff and you're like, I'm not going to do that. You may be the only lemming left alive, which is probably why Mother Nature made sure there were some people like you. But on the other hand, really not too great when it comes to school and your teacher's asking you to do something and you're just doing the opposite because you, not, you haven't even thought about why. Just <laughs> it's a reflex for you. So, you know, stop and, and know that about your character and then just stop and think about it and think about, well, now, why am I doing the opposite? Am I doing the opposite because I, I really believe the opposite is good or I'm just doing it because it's part of my character defect? And is it worth the friction that you're going to have to deal with in return? Boy, I have a seven-year-old uh, at home, and she is fiercely independent. I have to, may have to give her a very similar speech to what you gave your child. 
And uh, yeah, I I encourage you to do that because I find that kids are amazingly receptive to these sorts of observations Mm because they kind of know it. You know what I mean? Right. All right. Last question, Anna, with all of this being said, the idea of moderation, while relative to the individual and the substance or activity is also an important concept to understand here. So what is the proper point of moderation for somebody, assuming that that moderation isn't outright abstinence for somebody like me who who used to drink too much, but I can drink now. I know I can go out and drink a couple nights a week, have a couple glasses of wine, a couple beers, be okay with that. But for somebody on social media who's got a problem right now and is able to kick it or somebody who has a food addiction or a drug addiction or a drink addiction or something completely all uh, completely different altogether, what is that proper point of moderation? It starts with abstinence. You must abstain for 30 days from your drug of choice to reset reward pathways. And also I can just tell you experientially from my clinical practice, it's much easier to go from abstinence into moderation than it is from heavy use into moderation. And I think again, that's because once you reset those reward pathways, you're able to see true cause and effect and you're able to enjoy other things. When you go back to using in moderation, think about the balance. What you don't want to use is anything that tips the balance too fast and too hard to the side of pleasure, because then it's going to be a lot of work for your brain to bring it level again, first by tipping it to the side of pain before becoming level again, because that's how that balance does it, right? There's a cost. You got to come down before you're level again. And then the other thing is to make sure you leave enough time in between using your drug of choice for those for homeostasis to be restored, right? You want to make sure that you're not using on the heels of a balanced tip to the side of pain, which is just going to drive it down further and further. You got to leave enough time in between for that balance to restore homeostasis so that you're more resilient. So you're not kind of chasing dopamine. Anna Lemke, MD, is the medical director of Stanford Addiction Medicine, a psychiatrist with years of decorated research in mental illness, and the author of the book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Anna, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this important book. Well, thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Join me next time when I speak with film critic and historian Leonard Malton on Starstruck, my unlikely road to Hollywood. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.